Hello and welcome to the Endurance Coach Podcast. My name is Mark Laithwaite and I'm here today with my co-hosts, ultra runner and sports psychologist, Dr. Ian Bordley, and also with sports injury specialist, Mike James, aka the Endurance Physio. Each week, we'll be telling you what's new in the world of endurance sports. We're going to have some amazing guests on the show and we'll be discussing how you can reach your true potential on race day. So sit back and relax. We hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon, boys. Uh, it's been a while since we've spoken, hasn't it? It's been a, a, a few weeks. Um, but we are back um, after a stunning weekend for endurance running and for triathlon. There was Well, there's a lot gone on since the uh, World Athletics Championships and Berlin Marathon and the 159 Project and Chicago Marathon and Kona. So uh, there's, there's plenty, to, uh, plenty to talk about. I don't really know where to begin. Um, uh, but we should begin with the weather, shouldn't we? The weather here is uh, is not too bad, actually. It's forecast a bit bit rainy later on, but the weather here is good so far. Mike, coming to you, what's the weather like where you are? I think it's just easier if I just say that since we recorded last, the weather here is getting me excited about running around the desert. It's <laughs> awful. It's, ra- it's pretty much rained every day. It's rained really hard every day. I don't think I've run on a non-runny day for about two and a half weeks. It's awful. <laughs> uh, Ian, what's it like where you are? Well, I think the weather must be moving from Wales through to Birmingham up to the, up to the north because um, it was reasonable this morning, but it's just started raining. So, uh, oh, getting... so I win then. Yeah, you win. Sunny Wigan, God's own country. Um, <clears throat> okay, so we're going to open up with a 159 project. Um, you know, it was... Uh, Streamed live, wasn't it, over the, on Saturday, and uh, so much chat on on Twitter and on Facebook and all the various social media. Uh, I'm going to come to you first, Mike, just for your thoughts on the whole uh, 159 project and the first runner ever going under two hours. Um, mixed thoughts, to be honest. Controversial thoughts, to be honest. Um, the runner and sportsman in me thoroughly enjoyed watching the whole thing it was exciting to watch the wife the kids watched it it was great uh the professional in me just saw it as nothing more than a fantastic example of how we can apply sports science into a real world application um i'll probably save more comments for for as the chat unfolds but uh, mixed feelings watching it and uh, Ian, coming to you. Very similar for me, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's very easy to get lost in all the excitement of the projects and everything. And uh, it was impressive the way they could apply sports science and um, and try to take out all those other factors that might normally slow someone down. But at the same time, it's really difficult to to see how much of an athletic performance that was. But regardless of all that addition, I think, it was an incredible athletic performance. And the one thing you can say about Kipchoge is he's just incredible executing uh, time and time again in the marathon. And that, for me, is the most impressive thing. And the amount of pressure that was on him. 
I think the last time they did this two years ago, they had the three athletes. Um, I don't think they ever expected one of the other two to probably do it, but it did take some of the pressure off Kipchoge because it wasn't just about him. But this was, if anything, more fanfare than two years ago. He got so close to time before, the amount of pressure that was on him this time. And then to still be able to execute in those circumstances was the most impressive thing, regardless of everything that's there in terms of the circus around it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a fair point as well, isn't it? Because in any, if you're watching any marathon race, you've got a whole pack of runners and you're wondering who's going to come across the line first. But this whole project is just one person trying to go under two, two hours. So if they're not on form on that single day, then the whole project fails and the whole show fails, doesn't it? So, you know, it was very much all about jogging. Uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose on social media, there's, there's a lot of positivity. I certainly split with the positivity that you say that the guy still had to run 159. It's amazing, you know, feat of endurance to run 159. But then on the flip side, you've got a lot of comments, um, which was that, in effect, all of those external variables were taken out and all of the sports science that was added in, in effect, made it, easy for him or made it easier for him to go under two hours uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here but it doesn't stand as an official uh, an official time does it because it wasn't in a race so um, yeah. and it wouldn't stand because of all the, the, the pacing and the way in which the pacemakers moved yeah. in and moved out and substituted in and out yeah but and but I think even with all that sports the fact that he went across the line he looked like he, he was so fresh that you do wonder, you know, it's only a matter of time before it happens on a fast marathon course and it's, you know, it's going to happen somewhere soon. That, that, that was probably the other thing for me was that it seemed as though they probably had a huge margin of error beyond uh, just doing 159.59. I think they knew that probably gave them more. Uh, if it had run 158, it would have ruined it, wouldn't it? Because it was 159 project. <laughs> so it wasn't allowed to go too quick. But... Um, I don't think they wanted to anyway. It was just about breaking the two hours, but he actually looked as though there was quite a bit more there. And I, I suspect from the testing they've done in advance, he probably knew they had a margin of error given the amount that they invested in it. They probably want to be fairly confident they were going to do it. Uh, yeah, so a lot of neg the negativity I would say on social media was around all the uh, all the add-ons, you know, the, the pacing and the lasers and the shoes and all this kind of stuff and all the support that he had. And people's boss seen that almost made it made it sterile and it wasn't like a proper running a proper race um and obviously this whole thing is as 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 we all know it's it's a nike marketing project that's what it is ultimately isn't it it's a nike marketing project to advertise nike shoes and the brand and whatever else so all of that stuff is part of the marketing project but in terms of the the those add-ons that he got i mean Correct me if I'm wrong here, but the laser was what? Shining a light on the road and they just followed that light and it showed them the correct pacing. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, nothing and wrong with that. And showed them the shortest route to run, didn't it? So they had a, so, shortest, they had a shortest route marked out, a, a zone, a buffer zone that they needed to stay between. And then the lasers were just forming the pace line effectively for yeah. his pace group to tote. So... Um, Nothing more technical than that, but again, variables that were taken out of. I've seen plenty of comments about how skillful the pacing was, but the skill was that they were able to physiologically run at that speed for that length of time, not to pace that speed because they didn't pace it. They just towed the line effectively. 
Yeah, yeah. But I mean, at, at London Marathon, they paint a line on the road to show the runners the, the quickest route, to show the elite runners the quickest route. So in effect, this was just the same thing. They had a line on the road, um, which showed them the shortest route. Um, but I do, I find it fascinating that they use the word laser, uh, because correct me if I'm wrong, but it's just a, it's just a light on the road, isn't it, that they're following? But but laser sounds a lot more techy, doesn't it? It sounds a lot more sciencey to use the word laser for me. So um, so they had a light, a, a, a laser shining on the road, which showed them the shortest route to take, and they just ran up on a line, and and uh, and that showed them the correct pace to run at. Uh, but then aside from that, what were the other things that happened then to, with, with the, the nutrition? They had people following with and handing up drinks. Is that right? Yep. There's people on a bike, people on a bike supplying him things when he needed them. So he didn't have to go off course. He didn't have to grab a bottle. He didn't need to do anything there. It was just supplied to him. It was quite an advanced drink as well. It was the Morton drink, wasn't it? That's meant to... There's less chance for stomach issues around it, but that's not something that's anything beyond what you could have in a normal race. You could take that drink in any other race. It wasn't that was an advantage over what he would say if he was running Berlin. But yeah, yeah it was it was fairly advanced in terms of the technology of the drink. And that Martin drink, I mean, that's a, that in itself has a, you know received various comments. Because correct me if I'm wrong here, but there's no research as yet which shows that it's beneficial. There's, uh, there's some ongoing research, including some in our school currently, looking at that performance of that, but there's certainly no published data. Yeah. I just, I, I just wanted to un understand this. The Martin Energy Drink, um, they, they have a hydrogel coating the carbohydrate. Is that right? Yeah. So in effect, they're putting a layer of water around the carbohydrates. Right? Is, that, is that what a hydrogel is? Yeah, yeah. And, so, that you, so it's easy to digest. Um, so does that allow carbohydrates to be absorbed through the stomach rather than just through the gut if it's got a hydrogel coating? Or does it... So my understanding is it doesn't start absorbing until it gets to the stomach. Yeah. So those GI problems that you can get with some energy drinks and, and supplies are limited because it is protected through the things that it will react badly to and then only disseminates through where it needed to disseminate through. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, so that's the theory. Right. Okay. All right. Okay. So, so we had the, he had the, um, the Martin energy, which as you say is available for any runner of any marathon, you know, and so that's, that's not a, a special thing, but he did have drinks handed up. And, and so, so what else, apart from someone shining a light on the road, showing how fast you should be running and the straightest line and it's someone handling drinks on a bike? Probably the course itself. I think what they tried to take out from the Monza was there's fewer turns. So one of the things that I was quite surprised of when they selected uh, Monza for the last attempt was that a lot of the time they were running on the bend, a lot more than they were this time. And... For, because of the car, probably, they couldn't actually run on the inside bend as well. So whether they ran any additional, but more in terms of the effort, the additional effort you need to put in if you're not running on the straight. And that was quite a lot of the talk beforehand was the amount of extra effort you need to put in when you're running the bend. So I think they've they'd done quite a bit in terms of selecting the course to try and iron out those aspects. And that, this attempt was originally advertised as being in London. And I think one of the reasons that they maybe chose... Vienna was because they couldn't find the right course to do it on. Um, 
so yeah i think in terms of the course itself and finding one where to minimize the amount of additional energy in terms of turns i think that's one of the big things that's often missed in terms of marathon courses around the world when people talk about faster and slower courses the focus is always on whether the flat but for me i think it's that's the, the turns that are most important i think that's one of the big differences for Berlin compared to London is that there are a lot more long straights for to run on. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think they've worked, they, they'd selected it for that reason and not gone back to Monza. Plus, there's the crowd this time as well, which they didn't have last time. Yeah. Some people thought about it being an important variable. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then aside from that, um, there are, of course, the magic shoes. Was there anything else aside from the magic shoes? So I think I think mentioning the fact that there was the team of 41 elite runners that were in a very strategic formation and a strategic rotational format to allow this buffering zone of, of the wind resistance and being able to refresh it for him to keep up. He sat in a pocket effectively, a bit like a quarterback does. Um, and we've got models hypothesizing how much wind resistance was was lost from him in that format, but we don't know exactly. Um, but we could probably safely say it was a substantial buffer in effect for him. I've listened to similar discussions around this in terms of the pacing and the advantage. And one of the things people often compare to is uh, normal marathons where you would lose your paces in the second half. One of the arguments against this being a major advantage that people focus on is the fact that, well, people often go a negative split on the fast type when world records have been set. Bakili recently in Berlin, when he got very close to the world record, ran a negative split. And people say, well, if this is such an important factor, why would people run quicker in the second half? But one aspect that people don't focus on when they're discussing that is the, the weight loss through dehydration. And I think that is a factor is that um, research suggests that athletes often lose one, two percent in terms of body mass because it's, uh, it's like a controlled dehydration so you're actually more efficient because you you weigh less later in the race um and obviously that's an advantage he would have still been getting this time on top of the uh the wind breaking effects um yeah. so i think that sort of that probably explains what you see in these other races not that they, they aren't getting an advantage from the person in the first half but that the the weight loss that they're experiencing is probably allowing them to still run quicker in the second half. So if he's got that and the breaking effect, the wind breaking effect throughout the race, then um, that's an additional advantage. Yeah. Because he didn't negative split this time. Well, he probably did by about 10 seconds when he picked it up in that last care. But other than that, it was pretty net metronomic. I think we were within two seconds of yeah. um, 159.50 all the way around yeah yeah which and the, again suggests well, that maybe you can go even quicker yeah well you see him at the finish you, you, you my first thoughts were he could have gone quicker yeah uh but then i guess you know by the time you you know that it's too late to <laughs> it's too but, but similar when, when you guys mentioned earlier about the marketing side of it and if you look back to Yelena Isimbaeva when she was competing with the pole vault, she knew she could take five, ten seconds off the world record, but she would just go up one centimetre at a time. So, so Bubka was the same, A, because there was uh, Diamond League money at stage every time you broke the world record, but why why would you not break the record 30 times instead of five times? Yeah, the, the, thing, for me, that, uh, the thing for me on that one, I was just thinking of the exact same thing, but 
The difference here, of course, is the amount of money that was invested, you know, the tens of millions that were required to put this on was all about breaking the two hours. So where's the incentive to put all that in to then see where the actual limits are? You know, if we really go for it and push uh, and say Bikili at the same time, so they put them both out there. But, you know, where's the, uh, where's the financial incentive to do that when you've already broken the two hours? So we might never get to see that, I suspect. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, there is the shoes. So, um, you know, which I think a lot of this was geared around, you know, so it's a night marketing strategy for the for their footwear. And it's a lot around the uh, the racing shoes have been developing recently with the carbon plate in the, the 4% and the shoes have, was the first one was the 4%, wasn't it? And they've developed shoes since then. Um, so, Ian, what's your take on the uh, on the super shoes? I think the evidence around the shoes is that, well, I think the shoes are probably the biggest factor that we're seeing. I think a lot of the rest is, some of it's maybe uh, a bit like a marginal gains, sort of smoke and mirrors, making it look as though we're doing many more things to make it look impressive. Like the, the, you mentioned the lasers, great pictures in the, uh, in the newspapers and on the TV media of these two green lines shining down on the, on the road. It all looks impressive, but how much it's actually adding is questionable but i don't think there's a lot of question on the shoes that they're probably explaining a lot of the improvements that we're seeing in terms of some of the world records i think it's something it's in the two years since um since the first break in two attempts six of the top uh 10 men's marathon times have been run and seven of the top women's is something along those lines and then the world half marathon record for both of those for the men's and the women's have gone and they're not just going by seconds. I mean, it's like, like we'll probably come on to it later, but Paula Radcliffe's record yesterday in Chicago, they're going by, like, it was over 80 seconds. Yeah, and that's a record that people were saying, yeah, wouldn't be touched for years, uh, just getting obliterated. So, and in terms of the research evidence, I don't think there's a lot of doubt that certainly the evidence we've seen from the original shoe, that it was probably true that it was giving you a, Four uh, percent uh, improvement in efficiency, and in fact, some of the evidence suggests that for slower runners, you get an additional advantage. So, a three-hour runner might get more of an advantage than a two-hour runner, and a four-hour runner might be getting more than the three-hour runner, which is probably just music to, to Nike's ears, to be honest. But um, yeah, that's what the evidence is suggesting, and that it backs up on the efficiency claims. The one thing to add on to that, and there's always these unknowns. We're not getting the data from Nike, whether you could fully trust it if you got it anyway, because obviously they're biased when they're, um, what they're presenting and how they present it, um, whether consciously or subconsciously. But we're not seeing that data in the shoes that are being used now are different to the shoes that the research was conducted on. So there's the, as you mentioned, there's the original 4% shoe and then there's the next percent. But now there's a patent out for an another shoe and additional technologies that are quite a lot a long way beyond what we've seen with the next percent um and that's the shoe that kipchoge was wearing olympically and one or two others but they're also wearing ones that are tailored to them specifically as well and i think that's where a lot of the ethical questions come in is that there's something to be legal it's meant to be available on the market but whether that's ever possible i don't know yeah. Um, I should probably let Mike um, make his comments as well. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah. That, that, that's some of the initial thoughts from there. 
Yeah, I agree with that. You know, we we, we know what the four percent was doing, and then that did become commercially available, as you mentioned about the um, the six percent prototypes that he was supposedly wearing. That they've got now three custom shaped carbon fiber spring plates with four airbags, um, which help sort of prevent bottoming out of the foam but returning the energy back to the plate so it's all about this reduced energy cost of ground reaction force within this spring model of uh, extra energy transference back through the body which will reduce the cost uh, and make running more economical but will also propulse you forward further so so we're talking potentially you know ridiculously big advantages through this tech which is in the form of a shoe to allow you to just be better, be faster, be more economical. So, um, and again, if we, you know, certainly if anyone who came into my clinic, if I could show them that an exercise or any modality that I gave them would give them 6% improvement, then there'd be people biting my hands off for it. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, if it's, if it's available for 240 quid, people are going to be buying it. Yeah. I think another thing that just came to mind and something that's often not discussed, but when you talk about the reduced muscle damage, if this is a shoe that you're wearing regularly in training, it's actually possible that you might be able to do more training yeah, because yeah. you recover better, which just adds another dimension to it completely. Well, they showed that from, the, I think, the research in the 4%, didn't they? So, because the, the, there's two separate things here. There's the, the carbon plate, which is the, you know, the transfer of energy, so... I think they found at the heel contact they were losing some energy, so they changed the carbon plate and curved it rather than the plate being flat. And then they know that there's a lot of energy is lost at the toe-off. So the, uh, around that area, they, they altered the plate to generate um, more force at toe-off. So basically, you've got more energy from the carbon plate, but the foam that they used and the thickness of the foam, uh, and when that first shoe came out, my first thoughts were that looks like a hoker. Um, but when the first shoe came out, the, the, one of the notable things was the amount of foam that they put in there and the, the, the material that the foam was made of, it was reducing impact. And they actually measured uh, markers of tissue damage um, in the blood. They were measuring things which showed how much tissue damage there was, and they found that it was reduced um, by wearing the shoe because of the excessive cushioning. So the excessive cushioning reduces damage by absorbing impact, and the plate is providing the propulsion. So it's like a double whammy. Um, but um, one of the things that they actually showed is that as the week went on, the, sp the running speed were better later in the week because of you suggested the amount of cushion was reducing damage. So at the day-on-day -day accumulation, they were less damaged by the end of the week and their training at the end of the week was far faster than those people in the control group who were wearing the normal shoes. So there is, like you're saying, a, an accumulation of training effect there as well and reducing damage. So, um, so yeah, fascinating. And but like you said, and then you come down to this, uh, this moral question. And so where does this, where does this stop? Do we start putting regulations in like we did for, you know, FINA did it with swimming costumes, didn't they? And I know with UCI and cycling, they've got all, all sorts of regulations and it's constantly changing in cycling because, Cycling is a sport where technology is constantly governing speed, isn't it? The current trend in cycling is aero, aero fabrics, aero helmets, aero fitting, aero bikes, and all sorts of materials which are making people faster, even though they're not actually fitter. 
So the UCI are constantly, you know, your sock length has to be mid-calf, doesn't it? They're wearing the aero socks. And it's a length, they have a, a way of measuring your sock length and all that kind of stuff. So where do we go with shoes? When does it become a point where you say it's just not fair? It's, um, it's a difficult one, isn't it, to implement? That's the thing. I, I guess when you've got patents and there's things that you can actually check for, you could ban a particular technology um, that you could implement that. Um, but then again, the kind of it's like people have been making these claims and trying to do these things for years. And it seems like the first that because you've had claims about shoes that reduce tissue damage, shoes that will get, you know, allow you to run faster because they're lighter or there's more of a propulsive effect. And now someone's done that so successfully, it seems, that now we want to ban it. But it, people might be doing that incrementally all the time. So you might still have one runner that's got an advantage or, over another one, um, but not be able to detect it quite so easily. I guess that it, this has just brought this question out because it's such a marked difference, I guess. Um, and I think it's easy to, and I think it's only really an ethical issue when you're looking at the sport at the elite level um, in some ways, because I think it's very easy to get talking about the shoe um, and forget all the other factors that have to go into performing well in mm -hmm. terms of getting your training right, getting your nutrition right, executing on the day, you know, all these factors and pacing yourself. No shoe is going to save you if you get any of those things wrong. And it's probably still only going to make a, you know, a minute or two's difference on your time, maybe a little bit more for, for slower runners. Um, so, yeah, if you're watching an elite race and you've got, and you're comparing to runners and one's wearing it and the other one's not, then, then maybe it seems that there's an unfair advantage there. But in terms of the ones that are available further down the field, the same shoes available to everyone across the market. It might not be the one that Kipchoge's wearing, but all the people that are on that in that race or in an age group race and so on, that technology is similar. Um, so uh, for me, I, I don't see a strong argument for the fan in it because I think it, it's you it might be you might be getting gains elsewhere. You know, to take it to its conclusion, you've got to have everyone wearing the same shoe, haven't you? Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, and then the evidence isn't at a point now where we can't determine whether one person gets more, you know, two people of the same fitness might get different advantages from it or from another equivalent shoe. So I think we're in this sort of, when you start trying to implement this, it'd be difficult because another technology would come along and a company might not apply for a patent. So it might not be so obvious what that advantage is. What do you, do you ban carbon plates outright? Is it the cushioning that you ban? You know, which elements of it do you ban? So I think it's, it's going to be difficult to implement if we decide to go down that road. Yeah, I think I think I think Formula One is a good example where this proprietary tech comes out and there's margins. They're very restricted margins, but as long as you fall within those margins, you can tweak your own product accordingly. You know, we know that <clears throat> Nike have been very successful. But every one of the major shoe manufacturers is now bringing out a carbon-plated shoe version. Mm. Um, I think ethically, you know, when we look at science and applying technology to anything, the key word you always need is standardization. So what we're potentially arguing about now is that 
Nike have been able to exploit the standardization of it. Ross Tucker talks about the top 10 people in an elite field with all variables being said and said and equal. There's about a 1, 1.8% difference in performance. So if I give half of that field a 4 to 6% or more advantage, then suddenly we're not standardized and something is going to skew the results so as long as everyone's got access to the same things you know um, another one of Ross Tucker's great analogies is that being tall is an advantage to be a basketball player but being tall in the NBA isn't an advantage because everybody's tall in the NBA well, it's like so, the so Max isn't it as an yeah. indicator of performance uh, in endurance events um, it's very good at differentiating between someone who's elite and not elite but when you look at the actual elite, it didn't tell you anything about who's going to perform better because these other things that make the difference. Um, and I think, I think you know, I've, I've had a lot of people call me a naysayer this weekend and, and sort of a bit of a killjoy. Um, I work with someone who's a, a GB international runner and he's been completely, you know, encapsulated by the whole thing and came up with a really good statement this morning to be honest where he said you know what it's done is shine a really positive light on a sport that's had some bad publicity over recent years and it's excited people about running again and yeah i'm really not trying to detract from that um it just needs to be that everything we're trying to do in 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 running is is scientifically sound and equal it has to be an equal playing field to to be able to analyze the effects of these things so But again, you, you guys have mentioned it earlier. What what I'm certainly not trying to say is is that the only reason he, he ran 159.40 was because of issue or because of the pacing or because of the lasers or the course. He is the greatest marathon runner of all time, arguably. And therefore, that's why he was able to do this. These aren't shoes you're going to be able to go. The three of us, sadly, couldn't turn up there next Saturday in Vienna with the same lasers and the same shoes and knock an hour off our marathon PBs. But we could probably, with the right training and the right circumstance, they would help. Um, we, I guess we just need to find out more and know more about the research if and when Nike uh, announce it and release it, and other companies do the same. I think that some people have said it's a shame for the person who actually does go under two hours without all of that there, because that, that moment's taken away. And I think for the general public, it probably has been taken away. Yeah, those of us that are very interested in endurance sport and sort of deeply immersed in this area are aware of all this nuance around the performance and probably recognise that there's more to those performances than just pure athletic ability, although incredible execution. Um, the general public miss that nuance and all they see is that the two-hour barrier has been broken now. And then if it gets broken another time, it probably won't even make... And in terms of an athletic performance... If that's done in the middle of a race, it's probably more impressive than what we've just seen, but it'll probably get a quarter of the media coverage. Mm. Um, I think you counter-argue as well, though, that almost, uh, you know, um, Kipchoge's performance has been taken away from him because he runs under two yeah. hours. third person runs under two hours, and all everybody says is, well, it's because of the shoes or it's because of the lasers or it's because of the pacers or whatever it is. And he does this amazing athletic feat and gets that taken away. And, you know, I made the point that Vakili ran in the same shoes in Berlin a couple of weeks before. And when he ran his 201.50 or whatever he ran at Berlin, nobody said, ah, but it's only because he's got those magic shoes on. It was the best marathon comeback in history, wasn't it, instead? 
Yeah. <laughs> so it was an amazing marathon, amazing performance. But no one said, yeah, but you're wearing the magic shoes, aren't you, mate? Whereas when Kipchoge's ran 159.40, everybody's kind of said, yeah, but it's because of the magic shoes. So, you know, so it, you could argue that he's, he's had it taken away from him as well. But, you know, so it's, it, it's, it's hard to say. But, yeah, but um, just uh, uh, going back to this thing about the 4% where I was talking about, and it's, you know, whatever we're up to now, 5%, 6%, these shoes are supposed to be benefiting. The other thing as well is it's okay to say it's a 4% improvement. But that, that in itself is a bit misleading because 4% of what, you know, the 4% isn't your marathon will be 4% faster, is it? No, it's, it's running economy, it's efficiency, isn't it? Okay, so yeah, and that, I, I, well, to be honest, I have to say, I probably should have read the paper, but I haven't read the paper, but I'm presuming that it was a 4% improvement in economy. Yeah. So they'll have yes. wrapped the treadmill. And just to explain this in layman's terms, so economy is measured as how much oxygen are you using when you're running at any given pace? Yeah, at a submaximal pace, yeah. Yeah, so if they've got, um, uh, if, if they put Kip, uh, um, Kipchoge on the treadmill and got him running at five minute miles, and then they'll work out how much, work out from a gas analyzer and a mask on his face, how much oxygen is he consuming at five minute miles? milliliter of oxygen per kilogram body weight per minute at five minute mile pace and then they'll switch the shoes if you like um and i'm sure it's a bit more complex than this but they'll switch the shoes got him running again at five minute mile pace how much oxygen was he consuming to run at five minute mile pace and more economical runners use less oxygen compared to less economical runners who use more oxygen so if you're not very fit you'll be using a lot of oxygen to run at any given pace uh, whereas the fitter you get, the less oxygen you need. So it's a bit like miles per gallon isn't it, in a car. You know, an economical car can drive a mile an hour and, and use less fuel and, uh, when, it, when it's driving. So, so there was a 4% improvement originally in the original shoe, a 4% improvement probably in oxygen economy. And that's very different to saying there's a 4% improvement in performance. Because there are lots of other to performance. They reckon that equates to about 2.5% in actual reduction in time. Yeah, but it, the example I would, because I was curious to see what the this where they measured uh, tissue damage as well, because it doesn't matter how economical you are when you're tested running for 20 minutes on a treadmill. If you then run a marathon and your legs are completely smashed at 18 miles, it doesn't really matter whether you're economical or not, you're going to fall apart. So, you know, that that's a way in which sometimes the, the data doesn't represent a true marathon performance. But they have, in fact, not just showed that it improves economy. They also looked at, does it stop your legs being smashed? And from the blood markers they've shown, that it actually stops your legs getting smashed as well when you're running the marathon on the road. So there's a double whammy there, isn't there? You know? Yeah, so you, you could be getting that 2.5% increase in, in pace, but at the same time, if you're getting less muscle damage, you might actually get something beyond that. Yeah, that's right. You're not going to slow down. You're not going to drop yeah. off as because your legs aren't getting smashed. And that's right. So it's... Uh, so it's interesting knowing what that, you know, when they say 4%, what, what exactly is it, you know, what were they measuring, but yeah. And then, of course, just moving away from this, because we've, we've mentioned them both at the moment, but we had Bikini running a 201.50 at, uh, at Berlin, and then Koskai running this amazing 214.04, uh, was it? Yep. Uh, yeah. 214.04 yesterday at Chicago, um, you know, which is just out of this world. And like you say, people thought that Ratcliffe... Um, 
probably, you know, her record would never get broken for many, many years. And in fact, if anything, I would say they've been going away from Ratcliffe's record. Yeah, yeah. At the time when she was racing, there were lots of women getting under the 220 barrier. And then they seem to move completely away from it and go back up into the mid-220s winning races. I think and they just changed. They went after the record for a few years, realised it was out of reach, and then gravitated back towards a, yeah. an easier way of racing, if you like, because if you run the first half very easy and only race the second half, you can be doing a 10K fortnight later, whereas if you, you run it hard, the full marathon, you've probably got to wait you know, a couple of months before you race again. So I think um, we saw... The, the, particularly in the women's racing, a gravitation back towards sort of a more an easier style of racing. But recently, one or two people have started going after the record again. It seems. So, what do you think? It's okay saying, "Oh, this is all um, the Nike Circus," and it's a two. Uh, in the one fifty nine thing was all because of the whole Nike Circus and the project and all the tech that they had and the lasers and blah blah blah. But but that's not the case in terms of marathon performance. Marathon performances are just incredible at the moment so 20150 for Bikili and then a 214.04 for Pascal so you know marathon performances in general the times are rocketing downwards aren't they and you kind of think that it's only going to be a matter of time before in a race somewhere the two hour barrier does go for the men uh, and who knows where Koskai is going to get the women's down to you know if she's got two she's got running 214 now where's that going to go I mean what do you think overall that this sudden improvement in marathon performances uh, what are your thoughts mike so i think with anything when you get experience and exposure then then barriers tend to be much more realistic for you um i think so so um ken and ec Bekele was more impressive a performance for me if i'm honest than kipchoge the fact when you take in his injuries his um comeback and the fact the way he ran that race, um, it was out of the blue. Nobody expected him to do that. So, so that was that was the uh, inspirational run for me out of all the recent runs. The um, the Costco one I didn't watch, if I'm honest, but I've followed it since and read a lot of stuff up on it since. Um, <laughs> it's it's the the usual questions raised in my mind of how there's been such a dramatic change in her times and and in performances recently um obviously as a podcast we're not here to to be too controversial and say things that that we can't substantiate but um yeah some things raised it's made me think about some other issues potentially um w without trying to put too fine a point on it but um as two times and you know generally because you, you track back and look at the field top 10s top 20s as you said they're tumbling down they're crashing down so um so it is, it's exciting to see where they'll end up. Um, I guess we're hoping that they can keep the money coming to get the right people on the right fields and the right courses to see where these things end up. Yeah, I mean, you might as well kind of get the, the, the elephant in the room there is what you say is that when the issue now is that whenever anybody runs a remarkable time, everybody is suspecting there's something illegal going on. And that's the truth, isn't it? It's a shame, really, with athletics, I think, when it gets to that point. And if Koskai, you know, you presume she's, she's running clean, I, you kind of feel sorry for, for her. But she's in this current climate, if you like, and certainly after the World Athletics Championships and the whole Nike Oregon project and Alberto Salazar and all of that kind of stuff, 
you look at athletes or Nike sponsored athletes or people involved with that, and you see these dramatic improvements in times. And, you know, maybe we want to go back and look at the World Athletics Championships. We can talk about Hassan and a 10,000 meter, then a 1500 meter victory a few days later, that it just puts a, a, a shadow of doubt over, over everything, really, unfortunately. Um, and if those athletes are clean, you kind of feel sorry for them as well, because I think we're in a one at the, that 159 project, when you hear about all of this marginal gains and all lasers and shoes and this and that, it reminds me a little bit of Team Sky and we're doing this and we're, we're taking our own mattresses and we're doing, our, and you know, to, to the hotels and it's all marginal gains and marginal gains that is that just a, a smokescreen for perhaps something more sinister, which is uh, underlying the improvements in performances. Um, yeah. Ian, no, go on, sorry, uh, back to you, Mike, on that no, one. I was just going to say, so I think where my scepticism comes is that um, if we, you know, the, the, the name that will always crop up is Lance. Mm. And I was someone who wanted to believe the Lance story, wanted it to be true, but had a small percentage of me always going, but surely this can't be genuine. And then hence the big uh, revelation and everything that's come out in the wash since. Now I approach all of these stories now completely with that upside down. I'm now very sceptical of it with a tiny part of me that hopes it's all true and hopes that it is the fairy tale of, of hard work and performance and evolution as an athlete. So, um, so yeah, Ian. No, I, I think that's the thing is we don't want to point the finger at any one athlete but you can kind of more turn it back on yourself if you like in that one of the real travesties of athletic uh, enduring it uh, enjoying it in terms of viewing it for me over the last 10 years is now i just don't watch performances in the same way and i'm always skeptical of anything and yeah it's just it's just being realistic you've seen it enough time and also i think <clears throat> there's some uh, suggestion there it's linked to the Salazar because I think obviously Mo Farah reacted badly to being questioned about Salazar again at the weekend but if you choose to be part of a training group that is there's some questions around you almost need to accept that those questions are going to be asked around you, about you it's just natural it's going to happen and I think that's the case with it. that does link Proskai to this because she's represented by someone who has represented three athletes that are banned for using EPO now. Um, previous London Marathon winners, I think he's Jet to Sun Gong, and then there's a male athlete, um, all represented by the same person that Koskai is, and they're all currently uh, undergoing bans for EPO use. So that as soon as you've got anything like that for your sort of that person on your shoulder, that question in the back of your mind, to hang on to, then you can't just look at it and and tell yourself that it's probably a jet. You know, you can convince yourself it's 100% clean performance. Um, that's not to say you can't say categorically it isn't as well, but it does raise that question, which does it does undermine your enjoyment of the performance because you start to question it. And that was the same thing we saw at the the World Championships. Just to go back to another thing that um, I think is important around the cross-guard performances, when you run a race in the way that she did yesterday and also when Paula Radcliffe set the record with male pacemakers, you can actually get closer 
to what we saw in Vienna on Saturday because you have got that person formation in front and she was sat in behind male pacemakers for the full performance. So you can actually get close to that um, in the females at the moment than you can in the males. I mean, you could potentially get quite close with men if you've got the highest quality athletes to pace you as close as possible to the finish line and then kind of let them go. But with the women, you pretty much get taken to the, the finish line. So you can compare that directly to Radcliffe's record, although it's on a different course. But I think that does that is an important one. I think obviously we've discussed the shoe at length, but it's probably worth mentioning that that shoe was involved in that performance as well, and in all of the performances where we've seen transformative records in terms of half marathons and marathons recently. So that is a common factor amongst them. Um, but there is always that question in the back of your mind that there's something else that's going on as well. Um, yeah. Or at, le at least some of those performances. Uh, the, the one thing I like to tell myself is that you, there is still the potential to get those athletes out there that can perform at that level because there wouldn't be any enjoyment if you didn't believe that. Yeah, yeah. And of course, was it, I forget her name now, is it Jenny Simpson, the American runner who spoke out? Yeah. It, um, and because she said exactly that, she said, well, you know, if you're going to be involved with that, with that group, you, you should expect to be under suspicion. And, you know, that's the, why, why would anybody not, if you're going to associate yourself with Salazar in that group, but that Oregon project, when I, when you look back at it, it very much sells the same as Team Sky did when it set up, which was, it's this cutting edge sports science and we have the best strength and conditioning coach and we have the best nutritionists and it's all that cutting edge stuff which again it creates this smoke screen if you like and it's gives you another reason to believe that the performances are are true um, uh, um and you know the when you look back historically it's quite interesting with it's only when you when you, you this kind of stuff comes to light now and you start looking back historically that you look at Lance Armstrong and with Lance Armstrong it was always well he he had cancer and he recovered from cancer why would he ever put any any other chemicals in his body he when he was a you know he was a when he recovered after having treatments for cancer he'd never put any chemicals in his body and then his greatest rival was Jan Ulrich and Jan Ulrich had a homeopathic um, practitioner that followed him round because he was really into homeopathy and natural remedies. And then his other teammate, Floyd Landis, was a Mormon uh, brought up on strong Christian values. who could only cycle at three or four o'clock in the morning because his dad had him doing chores for the strict Christian. And you look at all these cover stories and you think, so that's why I don't take drugs. And that's why he doesn't take drugs. And that's why he doesn't take drugs. And you think this is just some spin doctor is feeding the story as to why Floyd Landis or Jan Ulrich or Lance Armstrong would never, would never do these. And it, it's just a, a modern day scenario, isn't it? It's just a modern day, modern day smokescreen. That's all it is. It is. Yeah. And when you, when you look at some of those stories now, and we really good comparisons to things like us postal and the discovery channel team, just as they did in those days, there's now whistleblowers coming out. And they're valid whistleblowers who have no real gains to make other than saying the truth. There's a fantastic podcast flying around with the um, Adam and Cara Goucher, 
who were both part of the project and you know it is is themselves and Steve Magnus who were the inner circle of that project you know there's revelations coming out that you just can't really ignore yeah yeah I said I had the same conversation with someone this week I, I said that where this will all go wrong for the Oregon project and for Salazar and for other athletes and what I would say is you know you, when you the, the the issue like the world championships where you see Hassan win the 10,000 meters and then was it three days later, four days later, she, she ran the 1500 and annihilated the best 1500 meter runners in the world after winning the 10,000. Now she may well have done that clean, but unfortunately if she is clean, I feel so sorry for her because she's associated with this group now that that's tarnished and everybody will just presume that something more sinister has gone on there and she's been, you know, following, uh, taking something that Salazar has, has recommended for her, which, uh, you know, and that, that's, that's, that's another sad side of it that I'm sure there are athletes in that group who are probably clean, but they're all tarnished with that same brush. And yeah, interesting. I had this conversation with someone this week about whistleblowing and you're dead right with Lance Armstrong. What did him eventually is that everybody, all his teammates came forward and just, told the truth because they'd finished the careers and they'd nothing to gain by it and they probably made something from it from get from books and god knows what and interviews and that will probably be the biggest downfall uh, for salazar and uh, and for the oregon project and for those athletes involved that at some point in the next year or few years down the line people are going to talk because they've they've got nothing to gain they don't need the loyalty and they're going to come in you know they're going to say say things about various athletes and um, those athletes are going to be found out aren't they well the other reason the other thing the other part of the whistleblowing side is people who still have careers ahead of them and they will cut deals and plea bargains to then be able to reduce a band to continue performing in the future so um it's past athletes it's people with maybe a bit of a grievance to them because perhaps they got cut from the project or whatever but also it's those people who are still looking at self-preservation going forward yeah, yeah. Uh, Ian, what's your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, this, I thought the whole Salazar one, I think I've got less sympathy for athletes that have chosen to join the group after the revelations came out or those that chose to stay on afterwards. But certainly the ones that have chosen to go into that group after the, the, the rumours came out or the investigation started, such as Hassan, uh, and a few others. I think I've got less sympathy for them because it's almost like you know you're going to be associated with it, yet yeah. you're choosing to go into that. So, what's the motivating factor to make someone join that group? You know that there's going to be this link to it. So you. You must be convinced you're going to get something from that training group that makes it worthwhile to sort of take that hit in terms of the question against your performances, um, because it's all it, you can already. You could already see it. The evidence there was with Mo Farrow that there have been investigations by UK Athletics, um, maybe not particularly uh, robust ones, but the, the investigations were done. The media sort of questioned his performances. So the athletes knew that that would happen, yet they still chose to join that group. Um, and same, Mo Farrow chose to stay with the group for two years, and I think that uh, he gets quite a lot of criticism for that. But also, I think the one thing that a lot of them are coming under uh, pressure for always because they refuse to criticize Salazar. So they kind of say, well, we never saw anything happening. And they say, well, are you disappointed that, you know, this is what's happened? And then they come back and say, 
no, I'm, and they, they'll answer a different question or they'll say, I'm disappointed with the media's focus or it's not about athletes. And so they, they deflect the question. Whereas truly, if you're in that position where you had no idea what was going on and then your reputation was getting dragged through the mud, why would you not be uh, open to critical of it? So, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's, uh, I think those that are coming under criticism bring it upon themselves and there must be some reason why they're doing that. There might be external pressure from sponsors to not say anything. Yeah. And that, that's probably the other um, one that we should consider in that situation. I think the other one that's not been discussed too much is, so there's, there's this suggestion that, or at least Salazar's cover story, or uh, is that he was testing it to see whether, so Galen Rupert testified that someone had put something on his back following an event, uh, a cream or some something wet on his shoulder. And he said to Salazar, he was worried that he was going to, someone might try and put a cream on him that made him test positive. So they ran these tests, whether how much testosterone cream, ran these tests on his own son to determine how much cream would be required to get a positive. Now, the one bit of that that's not really being considered is where was that testing done? So have Nike got the testing facilities? Have they got uh, um, gas chromatography, mass spectrometry equipment that allows them to do the tests on for testosterone? Very expensive equipment that you probably wouldn't purchase just for one test uh, or one one experiment such as this. If so, why have they got that facility? Um, or were they getting them tested externally and sending samples? In, in which case, where were they? And, that's a question I've seen raised, but I've not seen an answer to yet. And I think yeah. there's one that we would like to see an answer for. Yeah. It was interesting what, when watching the World Athletics Championships when they were discussing it a lot, and uh, they were sat on the sofa, and you've got Gabby Logan and Paula Ratcliffe having a conversation about it. And Paula Ratcliffe was quite dismissive of it. And she was saying that, you know, she was disappointed that they were chasing Salazar and they should be focusing... Uh, U.S. anti-doping should be more focused on chasing athletes and not chasing coaches. And at the time, I'm sat there watching it and thinking, you're a Nike-sponsored athlete, still a Nike. You always were and still are a Nike ambassador. And your husband coach is Mo Farah, who was part of that group. Should we really be listening to Paula Ratcliffe's opinion on the matter on BBC Sports? It is probably the most awkward, difficult interview I've ever seen and she looked awkward, difficult and her answers didn't make sense. Uh, I noticed she wasn't questioned on that again after that. I'm not, I'm not surprised. And some of the, um, she was suggesting that it was a cover-up for Coleman because of the, the mess around the, the three whereabouts theories, even though the investigation started four years ago. So, um, yeah, she either didn't want to portray her true um, thoughts or she wasn't comfortable doing it or she was under pressure not to, but certainly not the right person to question about it. She, she'd um, have probably gained far more respect from the public if she had literally just gone, I've got too many conflicts of interest yeah, to yeah. really answer that question. Yeah. Um, and, and everyone would have gone, yeah, fair one. Yeah. <laughs> Interestingly, I don't know if, if you saw the Chicago Marathon yesterday, but she was on the finish line there as an ambassador again. She was... But, one of the first people to congratulate Costco for the world record. Yeah. Um, so still, still in that sort of ambassador role. Yeah. Um, but 
yeah, and, so again, there, and again there with her husband who's there with more yeah. so just links that are interwoven everywhere yeah yeah mm, well uh it's going to be fascinating watching this space on marathon performances and seeing where they're going over the next uh over the next couple of years and that yeah just the whole project and do you know what there's a lot of bad stuff at the moment which i think is a shame for athletics but there is still a lot of good stuff but um irrelevant there's, at least there's a lot of stuff so it's interesting isn't it you know there's a lot of interesting stuff going on so whether it's bad or good and it ultimately that um you know that's uh if nothing else it's engaging people um so just moving away from marathon running then we uh we have to finish just by talking about Kona this weekend. Um, did any, either of you manage to stay up and watch the whole thing? I, I watched it to the point where British interest in the, the men's side was looking weaker. Um, yeah. and we probably didn't look as though we were going to win the women's. So I, I stayed with it till around about midnight, I think. I think if if we'd have still been in the hunt for winning on both sides, how to how to push through? Yeah, yeah. I stayed I stayed longer than I thought because I I got pretty pulled in and pretty excited watching Lucy Charles. To be honest, she yeah. was she was the way she attacked it and the way she what she tried to do in the race. I thought was was brave, courageous, and exciting to watch. Yeah. So I yeah. did I did stick around longer than I thought just to see how she got on. I think the thing with the with with the women's race is. Um, Probably like everybody, everybody else, I was too easy to dismiss everybody apart from Lucy Charles and Daniela Reef. So all I was looking at was, where's Daniela Reef? When's Daniela Reef going to make a, mo- a move and catch Lucy Charles? On the, on the second half, as she did last year, is she going to come powering through? The gap's getting bigger. She must be struggling. So you're only, it's like there's only two people in the race and you discount Annie Haug and everybody else from the race. So... All I'm looking at is how far Daniela Reef is coming off the bike behind uh, Lucy Charles and thinking, it's over, that's it. Lucy Charles is going to storm it. Uh, but of course, um, yeah, and how then flies on the run and uh, annihilates them all. My, my highlight of the old day was um, about halfway through the bike course, Lucy Gossage was on Twitter and she put on that Daniela Reef looks like she needed some leave. <laughs> <laughs> That was one of the best tweets of the week. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, but no, the, I mean, it, it, the um, yeah, on the on the marathon, I, I, I must admit, I was all, I was convinced that uh, that Lucy Charles was going to win. But but that's Ironman racing, I guess, isn't it? That's uh, you know, it isn't over to the finish line. And then, of course, in the men's race, that was. Uh, I, I don't think the men's race kind of turned into the classic. I thought it would. No. This year, for whatever reason, the build-up this year seems to have been bigger uh, than ever. And uh, you're looking at the men's field and who's racing and you know all, all the chatter, and then it, it just seemed to peter out a little bit. And I think maybe you know losing um, um, losing a, a, what's it, a, the last year's winner, what's his name, who wow. dropped the bike, uh, Patrick Langer. Yeah, so losing Patrick Langer quite early on in the bike, he'd been ill apparently, he had a fever or something. And then on the bike, he was struggling so bad, he just pulled over to the side of the road when he saw his coaching. And I, think he, I think he said he got dizzy. He was getting dizzy on the bike. So yeah. he, pulled, he pulled him. So having Langer out was a, was a, a big loss. But then, um, uh, and then, of course, Brownlee did exactly what we thought he was going to do. 
Lee, get on the swim, and then when he when he set off at the start of the bike, you're watching him and thinking, oh, don't don't start attacking in the first five miles on the bike, because he went straight to the lead, didn't he, and started yeah. pushing. Um, which uh, maybe that's uh, you know that that's the only way he, he knows how to race. But when you when you saw that happening in the first five miles, you thought, this is it. He's going to attack at the start. Yeah, and he got a couple of guys going with him, including the eventual winner, didn't they? But um, I think you always want to see some sort of battle on the run, don't you, to make it a classic race. I mean, Fredino's performance was obviously yeah, amazing, uh, but he did, there was no overtaking on the run and there was no real battle, uh, and it, it wasn't really in question, whereas the women's race was a bit more exciting because you had that uh, on the run, but... Yeah, no, I think people are expecting a few more players to be in the men's race than actually turned out to be the case. Um, yeah, I think there'll be some uh, some big lessons for Ali Brownlee, maybe. But um, he, he certainly gave it a go. Can't question that. Yeah, it was interesting watching the uh, looking at the all the other guys who were riding on the bike as well, because apparently I, I, the rumor has it from what I see, Alistair Brownlee, the special needs you know, roughly halfway, I had to pull in and re replace his back wheel and lost a bit of time. And then I had to chase to catch up to the, um, the front two again. And um, it was interesting looking at the cadence. A lot of the Ironman triathletes tend to favour the lower cadence, pushing a slightly bigger gear, because a lot of the research has shown that it's more economical, that basically your, your oxygen consumption and heart rate are a lot higher when you're pedalling at a faster cadence. Um, so in a, in a solo time trial where you don't really have to change pace or alter your pace as you would in a bunch race, you're better actually rolling over a bigger gear at a slower cadence. And it was noticeable him riding against the others that he was probably pushing 90 plus when they were probably pushing 75 to 80. I think he was around 100, and it's certainly in the early part. And yeah. he was 10, 15 revs above Fredino. Um, so... Yeah, I was surprised to see that because we did touch upon this, I think, in either the last podcast or the one before. And um, I was surprised to see quite how high he was spinning. Yeah. You know, what yeah. he was spinning at. And it's okay to say, well, people, you know, cadences are different and they suit different people. But on the whole, if you look across the board, look at all the top athletes in Iron Mancona, they're all pedaling moderate to low cadences, you know? So. If they're all doing it, then if he's the only one who's not coming from an Olympic distance background, then, you know, it's uh, I'm not going to tell Ali Brownie how he needs to change his training or racing because that would probably not qualified. But economy wise, it's probably not the best option. And then maybe paid on the uh, paid on the run. Yeah. And I think the other thing is the, uh, is the conditions, isn't it? It's the heat and the conditions, whether he really can cope with those conditions. And the thing is, unless they do move the world championships, Away from, he's probably always going to have to cope with that if he wants to be victorious there. So, um, whether he's done enough warm weather, I know he did some. I think he went out to Arizona before Kona to do some warm weather training. Whether he did enough to get the adaptation or whether he's just limited in that regard uh, compared to some other athletes, I don't know. Um, but it does seem to be something. There is a, com a number of performances where he's not performed to the level he's expected of being in those conditions. Mm, I'm, I'm wondering if with Tokyo next year I wonder whether that's still on the horizon for him I wonder if he went there gets another Olympics and then maybe after that you'll see him switch completely solely onto Ironman and then have the success that maybe we predict he will but um, 
Or he might just be waiting for that new Nike cycling shoe. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, the Nike twenty percent cycling. Shoe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's uh, it, it, I think even he's still learning because you notice, like again on the bike, the aerodynamic thing in cycling is a big thing now, and with with um, you know, the the change in the, the material of the skin suits and um, you know, the aero helmets, and it's been like the next big thing over the last couple of years. The big jump in cycling times is because of aerodynamics. And everybody's riding with those uh, kick-up tri-bars. So the hands were in a higher position to kind of close the gap between the chin and the chin and the, the hands. So you're more aerodynamic shape. And up until uh, this year, he was still riding in it. What I would say wasn't the best aerodynamic position. And even that's, you know, he's obviously I think when he's probably with his bike sponsors, they go and wind tunnel test him. So he's kind of, you know, probably still learning. And you saw this year he was riding in a much more aero position and taking advantage of something which some, everybody else has already been doing for the last two or three years, probably. You know, and we've but, seen it, we, you know, we mentioned Mo Farah. You, you've seen his dominance on the track and now his relative struggles getting into the marathon with it. Yeah. It's, it's the same sport, but it's a different life completely it's a different animal so uh, there are transitions that need to be made there's there's amendments that need to be made to everything about you and positions and styles that you can pull off over the shorter courses you just cannot get away with when you're competing against people who are seasoned in the adaptations needed at that next level up so i'm sure he'll get there i'm sure um he he has the natural talent to catch these people yeah. But he, he's just going to have to go through the stages of progression needed to get there. Yeah. I mean, I had quite a few friends went out, age groupers and people we've coached and stuff like that went out. And that was the big thing was the heat adaptation. And um, so people were kind of cycling in, in the bedrooms at home with the heaters on and stuff like that, trying to get used to it because you've got the heat and potentially you've got the humidity as well. And it just it, it's worth actually just going back. We're talking about marathon performances. It's worth mentioning Callum Hawkins. Callum Hawkins, yeah. Championships. Because after leading at the Commonwealth Games and just collapsing at the side of the road, you remember that awful situation where mm. he was leading the Commonwealth Games, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. Two, minutes. And two just, minutes. Just collapsed and keeled over. And everybody was just, all the spectators just stood there videoing him on the phones and no one helped him. I remember watching it thinking, what are you doing? Someone, get, and then he got up and tried to run again and you're thinking, God, someone stop him. So he suffered so badly at the Commonwealth Games with heat exhaustion and then went to the um, World Championships and where they ran in the middle of the night with, without any crowds or anything because to try and avoid the heat. And, it, and, and there was some great um, articles about him training at home um, in his shed. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm sure he's probably got a very nice shed, but he was training at home in his shed with heaters on that he bought from Aldi. Cool. Do you know what I mean? He's, he's not bought them from John Lewis or anything like that. They're from Aldi, and that's the critical yeah. part. Um, <laughs> and um, just training in his shed with heaters from Aldi just to acclimatise, and then just missing out on a, on a medal, you know, uh, which is in- incredible, really, but which obviously shows you if you do the right heat acclimatisation, you can you can get there. Yeah. Most psychologically difficult for him as well to come from Commonwealth Games of collapsing, like losing consciousness with, with heat exhaustion, to then go and race at Doha and race so hard to be challenging for a medal. Psychologically, must be tough for him as well. No, it, was, it was a cracking performance. Um, and I think it, when you see those conditions sometimes, it, it does, it, 
exaggerates the benefit you can get from running your own race and being controlled. And there was a lot of, you know, really aggressive running from some of the African runners at the front. And I think they paid for that as a group and they were trying to cover some of those and he ignored all of that and ran his own race. So alongside the preparation for the heat uh, and the conditions that he'd done, obviously, very diligently, um, also the way he executed his own race on the day, I think you saw those two things combined and you can show just how close you can get to athletes who might normally be five, six minutes down the road from him in a uh, big city marathon. It was, no, it was impressive to see. Um, were you watching it live? Because I, I, I just had a feeling that even when he caught them and pushed on, he thought, mm, he, he needs to drop one more guy and he just couldn't drop another one. So he dropped one off, didn't he? And he thought, yeah. we didn't know the one to go and it just wasn't happening. Because he, he was going to get outgunned in the last day, which is what happened, unfortunately, for him. But, yeah, what, yeah, what I found really interesting from the psychology of it was I think it's pretty widely accepted now that conditions like Doha, then the strategy is to limit the amount of your performance that would be lost in other conditions. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to see the success in its people who are potentially slightly slower but can minimise the loss of performance. And I wonder during the training whether that is a huge motivational factor for someone like Callum, that if I can perform at 90% of my best, mm-hmm. then I've got a real competitive chance against people that on other conditions I may not have such a good uh, chance of winning against. Mm-hmm. Um, it would certainly be that, you know, it, it gives that, uh, let's call them second tier athletes perhaps, which sounds a bit unfair to them, but the so-called second tier guys, a bit more of a leveller, a bit more of a fighting chance. Yeah, just with a bit more of a wiser strategy. Yeah. yeah. A bit more common sense, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. most, most, most marathon or long-distance winners, their strategy is to just go faster than everyone else. You know, I've got such a buffer if I run at 85% of my ability, but actually to run at 85% of my ability is probably still going to knock me for six in these conditions. Realistically, I want to be about 70% of my ability. But if Joe Bloggs can stay at 80% of his 100%, then he's just on my shoulder. Yeah. yeah. So really, really interesting dynamic. We'll see what happens in Tokyo as well. I would say the real positive is we're going to get the same thing in Tokyo, aren't we? Yeah. With crowds and daylight. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I wonder who's going to run the marathon in Tokyo, though, because... uh, well, did he send a couple of marathon runners? Because you could argue Callum Hawkins is the number one marathon runner in the UK now, not not uh, Mo Farah. Yeah, yeah. they probably both go. Um, yeah. It looks like um, there seems to be big consensus that uh, Bekele and Kipchoge will both be there trying to get a gold. Yeah. So, yeah. so it, it might end up being one of those few championships where all the major players are there and they're going for medals. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right because there are a lot. Of- a lot of the time with the World Championships, you don't you don't see the top guys there because they're tending to run big city marathons because they can make a lot more money, can't they? Mm. You know, certainly would be interesting to see Kipchoge, Bekele and Farah with about 5k to go all in a bunch. Yeah. That would yeah. be some, some finish that. Yeah. And it must be tough for Mo Farah now as well because it's, it's, his marathon times are not... He hasn't had the success he probably hoped he would have. And so much so, he's even contemplating going back to 10,000 metres on the track uh, and for Tokyo, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on, on that, Mike. 
Um, so my initial thought with that would be um, feels like he's maybe accepting that he can't beat these people. I think that's, you know, it feels like a weakness almost if he feels that he needs to drop down. Um, but again, he's he's probably looking at his last Olympics potentially. So if you can maximize your chances of meddling in whatever race, you're going to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, has he got more chance of picking up medals on the track than he would if those two are both running the marathon? Then probably. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. But the track 10,000 was run quite differently this time, wasn't it? So yeah. it'd have been interesting to see how he coped with that because that was really fast and really aggressive from the start. So yeah. if he went to Tokyo and it was run like that, it might not play into his hands. But then again, He's not going to be feeling too confident in the marathon because um, he just ran his slowest time by a minute um, yesterday in Chicago. So he's in a difficult position. I, I just I, there's a pattern in his marathon running that he chooses not to go with the lead group consistently. As if yeah, the first time he did that, you'd think, well, fair play, he's running his own race. And then if it worked out, a bit like when you see Callum Hawkins um, in Qatar. Fair enough, you say, well, that works, but this isn't working for him because he's probably not used to ever being in the second group. So I think he's conflicted. He's kind of, whether he's getting advised to not go with that group and to try and run his own race, but you've got to accept that with the motivational factors of not being with the league group, you haven't then got the pacing groups. So he just keeps getting caught in no man's land, it seems, Um, which then when the race goes away from him, he kind of just, can't sustain anything, I think, to what we saw yesterday. So, he's, yeah, he's in a real difficult position because if he chooses to go back and then that doesn't work out, then yeah. he'll be criticised on two fronts. So, yeah. Yeah, he's got some interesting soul-searching coming up, I think. It's, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because you may, maybe uh, uh, Mo Farah and Alistair Brownlee are in that same position. So you've got Mo Farah who's thinking, well, you know, multiple 10,000-metre world champion, Olympic champion, um, but probably bas- past his best now on 10,000 metres on the track. And if he goes back to Tokyo, it's a massive ask for him to medal uh, when he's not, you know, he's probably gone past his golden years of 10,000 metres. But he's stepped up to the marathon and he's just not quite there. Look at Alistair Brownlee's situation. You know, yes, he's twice Olympic champion at standard distance, but potentially you could say not as quick as these guys that are competing now and wouldn't stand the chance of a medal, but uh, he's stepped up to Ironman, and he's not reached that level in Ironman yet. So in this kind of grey area of, do I try and roll back the clock, or do I push on and persist with where I am now? You know, so it's, uh, and get caught between the two. You, you can see that for both of them, they're probably in, in the same position, really, aren't they? They both got, it's both... Um got massive things to lose and not a lot to gain if they go back and go down. That's the tough bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think the safer choice is probably to stick with what they're doing, is that, well, at least, because they've got Olympic goals, um, you go back and get a third or a fourth and there's no gain for them there. Um, And if they get gold, it's just another one of what they've already got. They've kind of said they've made the transition to the longer distances. Um, people will probably give them credit for just pursuing that and trying to do as well as they can. Uh, 
Brownlee's probably got a bit longer than Mo Farah, but Mo Farah hasn't got that long in mm. terms of performing at the marathon. He didn't really have time to come back to the track for a full year and then go back to the marathon the year after. And he yeah. keeps talking about learning the event and getting better at it. You can't lose a full year of doing that and yeah. still expect yeah. to be progressing, progressing. So, no, I think for both of them, the probably the better choice is to probably pursue what they're already doing and to keep down that road. Yeah. Um, I suspect Brownlee's probably got more chance than Farrow of making a go at it now because yeah. he's only at the start of that journey. Mo Farrow's been trying for a while now and there's no evidence that he's getting right up there with the top guys. Yeah. And for Brownlee, of course, it was his actual his first full distance yeah. Ironman because he did Ireland but didn't do the swim. Yeah. So it's his yeah. first Ironman, isn't it? So, you know, what, what did you expect? And I think he did say he was going there to learn, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. But, um, it didn't look like it when he went off on the bike, but that, that's what he said. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure he's just getting the right advice. He probably, you know, it's probably going to going to get faster from here, isn't it? So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so, going to have to, uh, I think one year going to have to go to Kona and just uh, take the family and go and enjoy it because it looks like an amazing place. And I know people have questioned whether they should move it away from Kona, haven't they, the World Championships? So that's been a little bit of chat. Should it stay in Kona every year or should it go any other world championships moves around from location to location, doesn't it? But just uh, let's just finish on that one. Mike, what's your thoughts? Kona, the home of uh, Ironman, should that be where the world championships are every single year or should they rotate it around? So before the conversation was started, I never had an issue with it always being in corner and it was something that never crossed my mind if I'm honest when it was chatted about as a rotational event going to different continents and maybe every fourth or fifth year going back to corner I quite like the sound of that that sounds that sounds pretty exciting most major sports these days that are trying to grow globally will take it to corners of the world that they don't traditionally go to you've got the rugby world cup out in Japan right now um so I think I'd be comfortable with either decision, but I quite like the thought of it moving, to be honest. Ian? Uh, I'll introduce a bit of um, balance on the other side, I guess. I can, I understand all the logical arguments for it. Um, I'm slight reservation because I've seen what happens in other sports when they move around in terms of then you start getting commercial decisions, as we've just seen with the World Championships and the athletics. Um, and whether conscious or subconscious, I think sometimes people make choices based on the commercial interest rather than the interest in growing the sport. So I think that would be considered one consideration. But I think really it's just because I've always loved reading books around Iron Man and it was always about Kona at the end of the year. And I think there's a real risk in, in changing that. I know people say about the carbon footprint and the expense of going and everything. And that's all. I understand all of that. But for me, I still think, you know, most athletes who can afford to compete in Ironman, which is quite expensive anyway in terms of equipment and traveling to events, uh, you can compete in your own country. But um, it probably as a one-off, if you've got the opportunity to go to Kona, afford to do it. Um, so I think given that opportunity, people will do. The carbon footprint's a slightly different one, but I don't, I'm sure the carbon footprint of, the Ironman event in isolation is pretty small compared to uh, what, what's going on globally. But the other thing for me is that 
Ironman is a global event anyway. The number of events that are around the world, and if you want to compete in it and be part of it, then you probably don't have to travel too far to do that. It's only when it's the World Championships that you have to travel. So in terms of growing the sport, I think they're doing pretty well in terms of global reach. Um, so for me, my heart would say leave it at Kona. Just that, that's what I associate with the, um, the World Championships. So my deciding vote then? Yeah, yep. it's down to you. <laughs> well, the 70.3 goes around, doesn't it? The 7.3 World Championships moves from place to place. But I would say um, my view is that um, Kona being the original place, it should definitely stay in Kona. The, um, I mean, I've never been. I have qualified multiple times, but I, I, I always said that I will go when, I'm, uh, when I turn 50. Uh, I'll probably get injured and never qualify again in my life. Um, and, and take the kids and have a big holiday. But what I notice is, I think the people who want the World Championships to move around tend to be the people that have never been. And everybody that's been to Kona, if you ask them, they would say, don't ever move it from Kona. You know, so I think that's probably, uh, I think that's probably got what the, uh, that you know, listen to the people that have been there. They're probably the most, the, the most uh, educated ones or experienced ones to ask. And they would say, you know, never move it from Kona. So, one day, one day, we could all go. We should go for a big holiday. We'll go. Yeah, oh, that, the, the year that you raised it, we should do a live broadcast from there. Live, yes. I'm not sure I could qualify, but we, we won't um, see him. We won't see him from the pool, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yes, definitely. Good. Well, uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, our chat there on marathon performances. I am just about to go online now and order myself some of those Nike shoes. Um, because have you have either of you running them, by the way? I'm wearing them now. <laughs> I, I have the four percent. Yeah, have you running them? Yeah, running the four percent. I'm running the next percent. Yeah, what did you think of the? Did you um? What do you think of them? Well, I'm I'm one for measuring things and recording things, and yeah, I for me personally, I didn't see as marked a difference as is suggested by the research evidence, but I probably did see a bit of improvement. I've not worn them as a day-to-day training shoe to get any feedback in terms of muscle damage and whether you can train more. But in terms of as a one-off for wearing them in a performance, they just seem to be a little bit there, yeah. Right, that's it, sold. We're gonna go and order it now. (laughs) Super, it's been great chatting as always. Uh, I hope it starts raining where you are and uh, enjoy your uh, your week's training. We'll See you soon, gents. Yeah, cheers, guys. Thanks for listening to the show today. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow myself uh, via the Endurance Store at Endurance Coach. You can follow Mike, the Endurance Physio, at the Endurance PT. And you can follow Dr. Ian Bordley at MD SportX. That's MD Sport EX. Uh, you can also visit our website. You can visit theendurancestore.com, which is a local running shop near Wigan. And uh, we also offer the endurance coach testing and coaching services. And also just check out sportsinjuryfix.com, where you can find a sports injury specialist near you. Speak to you soon. <laughs>